Welcome everybody out there to Divorce Recovery Man Over 40. We have a special guest, Rob Anthony. He has a uh, podcast called Are We Done Yet? And uh, we want to figure out what that is because I tried to disseminate it and see what was going on. I was a little confused, but he's going to straighten me up and uh, tell us a little bit about him and his premise of the podcast, Are We Done Yet? So go ahead, take it away, sir. David, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to good to meet you. Um, are we done yet? I think that um, I think the concept of or that question can mean a lot of things. <laughs> People have asked me what it means, and does it mean am I personally done with things? Like, am I done with my hair? Am I done with always being angry? Or does it mean are we done with the way the world is working? I think in initially my intent was it was um, are we done being polarized about every single topic that we're addressing in the world? Right. So whether it's BLM, whether it's Me Too, whether it's trans, whether it's Palestine, the fact that we've got to this point where the conversations you and I used to have when we were young, they may have been heated, but there was always an opening for compromise. And I think as I look at the world and what I wanted to do with the podcast show, I wanted to address the question of are we done yet? Not being wrong or right, but are we done being so attached to the topics that we're engaging in that we can't even move towards a consensus because we're so polarized. So that's the premise of the show. Um, but again, are we done yet? I'm very, I'm a very anal person. I'm very particular. And so even from the context of that's what I wanted this show to be, I had to look at my own uh, lifestyle approach. Am I done? Am I done trying to micromanage everything? And why can't this show just be what it needs to be? So are we done yet? Can apply to whatever we need to apply. I can ask you, are you done? What are you done with? Are you done with pasta? Let's talk about pasta. Are you done with U.S. policy? Let's talk about that. But let's get to the point where we're not as polarized about our about our, our passion points um, and then ideally move forward towards not solutions, but at least a better understanding. How can we apply that to the divorce recovery space, men over 40? Are we done yet? How can we unpolarize yes. men trying to heal, trying to go through all sorts of stuff, getting along with their soon-to-be ex or their ex? There's so many different... Uh, uh, modalities there. Help us with that. There are, I think, so I, I think I, I, I'm hesitant to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't do. So all I can do is share my own experiences mm -hmm. and the tools that I had to learn the hard way um, well before the concept of are we done, but just, just as, a, as a young man getting married at 21, I came into that process with, I came into that process with a, a wired mentality that disabled me from seeing the end of the marriage as anything else, else other than something that was done to me. Um, I went into it with high expectations. I went into it with a belief that this is how things should work. I went into it believing I was doing all of the right things. And with that firmly entrenched before we even said I do, I feel like I paved the way for the post-divorce state of not being done with being angry. Right. So I went from I did all of these things. I did all the right things. I I followed the how to be a decent dude playbook and she still cheated. That's a very easy formula for me to have applied because mm -hmm. I didn't have the tools to see it in any other way. I think as I look forward to my future relationships and I went through a period of trauma for sure, where I did all of the wrong things, experimented with all the wrong types of people to figure out what was best for me. Um, the concept of are we done yet had less to do with. So organically, my, my, my concept was I'm done with finding women like this, right? Mm -hmm. Checkbox number one, accountability checkbox or deflection number one. I'm done with doing everything I can in life only to get screwed upon, right? That's, I, was done with, I was done with all the wrong things versus 
I am done bringing things to the table that only I can control. So when I look back at my marriage, the only way that I really reconciled it, even now, even though we had an amicable divorce, we were there for the kids. We, it was fantastic. But it was very under the surface, hostile and visceral. We're lucky that our kids didn't pick up on it. But there was a lot of hatred there. And most of it was coming from me because I was still stuck in that. You didn't live up to my expectations. And that should have been your obligation. Um, the are we done yet part for me comes in. Are we done blaming somebody else for the decisions that we make? I know that sounds very, very broad. It's not, you know, on paper, it's not my fault that she was unfaithful and had an affair with a neighbor. That's a very easy out. Um, but I can't control that that happened. What I can control to help me process is what are the 10 years leading up to that and what do they look like? What did I bring to the table that I need to switch up? Maybe it was a wrong decision in my partner. Maybe it was innocuous things that I need to actually be a little bit humble about and go, hmm, I did do all the right things, but as soon as the marriage started to fail and we weren't communicating, rather than have a conversation, right? I said I was done dealing with it and I went to coach soccer. I was knee deep into coaching soccer. I was a, a junior coach. I was a senior coach. I was a referee. I was on the executives. I was on the committees. I did everything possible to get my ass out of the house and still be a good husband and not leave and cheat, even though she was. Um, so I was being a good community citizen. Partly because I love my kids and I, I, I love soccer. I still do to this day, but it was a great escape. So for me, looking back, <laughs> number one in dealing with me, are we done yet? Being so hostile and angry was what was the impact of me deciding to essentially leave the home for another vice? Mm -hmm. I didn't turn to drugs. I didn't turn to alcohol. I didn't cheat. Right. But I walked away from my marriage the honorable way by serving my community, by being the stand up guy that was there for the kids. I still left. So the are we done yet for me was stop blaming the end result. You can not like it. It can be horrific. It's not any less traumatic. But there are things that I brought to the table that made that an easier path for that person to get to. And as soon as I accepted like a modicum of accountability, it becomes very difficult to stay stuck in that angry spot because nobody wants to be pissed at themselves. But we all bring stuff to the, to the, to the table. But I think when things go sideways, whether it's a marriage or politics, we're so stuck in our, I call it our righteous trauma, that mm -hmm. we become self-righteous in the management of that trauma. So some of your history, I was reading that uh, your parents were like flower power. They were protesters. They were out there on the streets. Yeah. So what did you learn from that in order to make you into the man today that you are? Well, unfortunately, I learned shit all by the time I got married. Pardon my French. I didn't. I we like French I had all, on this podcast, so it's okay. <laughs> I had all of the right training. I really did. I had all. I mean, come on. My parents were South African. Um, they met in Holland and fell in love. They moved to Canada as a white South African couple and adopted a black child because it was in their heart to give back to the community, regardless of the politics. So I was raised from that point forward. That's the kind of culture I was raised in. Um, I was very whitewashed as a result, but that was the kind of salt of the earth, decent family values that I was raised in. Mm -hmm. But I took none of that. I took none of that with me into my marriage. Uh, I was raised to be very firm on my beliefs and stand by my convictions, but always leave room to understand your opposition. So for us, our, our peace movements were the peace movement. So I was in many, many rallies. Back when rallies were difficult to organize because we had no internet, and it was very difficult to get 1.2 million people to gather for a no nukes protest. But we did that. But it wow. wasn't so polarized that we were like aggressively hating anything to do with government. We just didn't want the world to be bombed. 
my dad was very much into Greenpeace. So his value was be firm on your belief with that, but know enough about what is the industry really doing? Um, what are the people behind the industry, right? Normalize people enough so that we can actually um, resist and protest respectfully. Unfortunately, I took none of that into my marriage. In fact, I went the opposite, right? I decided that I was going to come in as the hero. I was going to be the right guy. There was It was a value. It should be a value to this fortunate woman that I am faithful, that I'm a family man, that I don't have friends, that I'm committed to the house. Ergo, I should be getting my complete marriage vision. There was no understand the other human part of it. There was no mm -hmm. even really discussing what is it that you need out of the marriage as a mother of a six-year-old, right? What is it that you need as a, as a East Indian woman whose family and culture is very much opposed to you doing anything else but marrying another brother or an uncle? I was focused on what's in it for me, the exact opposite of how I was raised. I think it took failing miserably wow. and then failing a bunch more times to kind of go back to hang on. My dad always told me this, where did that go for the past 15, 20 years? Because it certainly didn't go in my ears and stick there. Let's talk about the concept of disagreeing with kindness in the general space and then the uh, divorce space. Oh, well, it's hard to be kind when you're really angry. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Right? So, so I don't, and I don't think I do it well. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I don't know if my answer is the right answer, but for me, disagreeing with kindness, kindness means agreeing to disagree later. For me, I need the time to process what I'm thinking, why I'm thinking of it, and then going back to my other model, which is what did I bring to the table? If I don't go through those kind of steps towards now we can actually disagree, it's already doomed because I'm, I'm too much of an Aries. I'm too much of a firebrand <laughs> to go into it with full passion and with a fairly academic brain. But unfortunately, you will lose. And I hate that I, that I know that. And the corporate world has taught me how to be tactical with the execution of intelligence and using words and, you know, almost being passive aggressive. So if I don't go into the, I need to walk into, I need to find the kindness first. Mm -hmm. That for me is a path. It doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't come organically. It comes after I've sat in it, maybe for a few minutes or a little bit of time. I need to work into it. I wish I could just organically be, hey, you know what? That wasn't cool. And I really, really hurt. But how are you doing? I'm just, I don't know if we're all wired to, but I'm not, I'm not wired to give too much of a shit about the person that I think has hurt me. But that's what it goes back to me, right? My yeah. perception of having been hurt is something that I control. And I know that for me, I'm not sure if it's the same for you, but I know that for me, that, that rush to being angered or rush to being hurt has zero to do with the person in front of me. They may yeah. have done something that's really not cool, but my, my impetus to go to that place that quickly has nothing to do with them. So I give myself a good five minutes. I don't respond to every text or every email. I used to. <laughs> it's a horrible, it's a horrible path. So kindness, how, how do we manage it? I think if we can, in the heat of the moment, um, and I did, I did learn this through numerous anger management type courses uh, after my divorce was over and after some unfortunate domestic incidents in other relationships, the idea of a timeout, I know it's, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a cliched term or count to 10, we say these things, but the value in it for me is immense. I need to walk away from that emotion immediately or else it's a fail for everybody. Um, and the key, it's funny, the, the key thing I learned in, in, in anger management was I was, again, I was still up, I was still on my high corporate horse that I'm in this class with all these other dudes who are clearly misogynistic and clearly, in my opinion, just 
assholes. I'm the smart one here. I made one mistake. I'm not like them. So I, I remember saying to the teacher who asked the same question, how do you manage conflict? What's the best way to manage conflict? And so I thought, here's my chance to get a gold star. Fucking nailed it. And I said, well, I think if you're feeling hostile and you're feeling aggressive, you should take a time out and walk away from the conversation and process your thoughts and come back to it in a, in a peaceful, organic manner. And she looked at me, she goes, really? You think that? I thought, oh, I got my star. This is amazing. She goes, so you think that's a, that's a, that's, you know, it's so great that you came to that place. She's being, she's being very passive aggressive. I didn't even really realize it. She goes, so amazing that you got to that place and you understand that it's perfectly fine for you to create a hostile situation, rile somebody up and then walk away until you decide it's convenient to come back. That's amazing that you could do that. How does that help the situation? And I, Damn. I couldn't process, I couldn't process what she was saying. And then it dawned on me, it dawned on me like the next class later or so, because I was really pissed off and I was angry at this person. But all she was saying is, it's a great model, but the kindness comes. If you can't be kind in the moment, the kindness comes from whether it's a phrase that I now use because I need to remember it. It's, hey, I'm really not comfortable or happy in this moment. It sounds cliche and sometimes it's not as, 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 as fluffy, but mm -hmm. I don't like where this is going. I don't like the way that I'm feeling. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I need some time to process it. And then the key is, can we get together in an hour or a day? Yeah. It give the person you're dealing with the kindness to at least give oh, them some closure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's all well and good for me to, to think about these things. And I definitely would go away with genuine thoughts of calm down, Rob, right? Find your responsibility and found your, find this concept of shared accountability, which I believe in, and then come back not angry. But in the meantime, she's furious and now she's spinning and she's feeling the same kind of abandonment left syndrome that I fear. And I'm going back to, and I'm surprised that it's not working. I'm surprised that the conversation didn't go down the merry yellow brick road like I thought it would because I took the time. So for me, the kindness part comes in. I would say, honestly, this is a long answer. I'm sorry. That's okay. The, kind, the kindness comes in accepting that you don't need to, in the heat of that moment when you're angry or needing to debate something, you don't need to make a decision about wrong or right. The kindness, the kind thing to do for yourself and your adversary, if you want to call them that, is to say, I need some time. Can we talk about this later? And here's the time, right? Make them a part of the process, yep. not a victim of it. Um, that, to me, is the first kindness I extend. And hopefully in that time out, I find the true kindness, which is, man, it wasn't what I thought it was, or maybe it was what I thought it was, but here are the things that I can understand as a human that would make anyone feel that way. And having those pieces, now I can be an empathetic listener versus a defensive listener, and we can actually move uh, forward. That would long been, answer. Yeah. Long answer. Oh, no, but great <laughs> answer, though. No, that's great answer. So the lady in the class, you know, you should have pulled that on her. That would have been sweet. <laughs> What's that? Oh, just <laughs> excuse me. Why do we visit this? You know, I, I'm I'm not feeling safe right now. But uh, thanks I'm for talking with me. Safe. I'm going to come back to this class with all these guys in here, and and we can revisit this later. But yeah, that would have been yeah, like yeah. bam. But yeah, uh, how but it, you, it's go ahead. It's interesting. It's 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 interesting, right? The the idea of take a time out or you know count to ten. I think those are great things. But I'd never thought about communicating. I'd never thought about making that a shared experience with the person that I'm in conflict with. Mm -hmm. Conflict with. I'd never thought about the consequences of what I thought was doing the right thing. Yeah. And so it took this very sarcastic woman to point it out. I'm glad that she did. And I've tried to <laughs> adhere to it ever since. So, so she actually helped you, basically. 100%. They, 100%. <laughs> I, I apply that to this day. And it's funny because it, it, it ties into a pre-divorce story that I'd love to share if, if I can. Go ahead, please. Where the, where the exact same sentiment 
was applied, but this was, this was, you know, so my, my issue with domestic violence was five years after my divorce. Uh, it was a one-time thing, not that that makes it excusable, but it came as part of my journey to becoming a better human after divorce. What my ex-wife and I did uh, when we realized that the marriage was over, I realized that, that uh, our kids come first, first and foremost, and we were committed to finding a counselor that would help us kind of navigate how do you how do you manage this with the kids, right? What is the what is the best way to do it? And mm-hmm. we we were amicable enough to be almost better partners now that it was over. <laughs> Laser focused. Kids come first. Whatever it takes, financially, counseling doesn't matter. We'll admit to being wrong. It doesn't matter. The kids come first. And so we had this preamble going into our our therapist interview sessions where we were kind of vetting who would be a good counselor for mm-hmm. not only us but our kids. And we went into each session um, with this little speech. You know, we're, we've decided the marriage is over and our, our intent here is to make sure that this is as painless as possible for the kids. We kept saying that, as painless as possible for the kids so that they can ideally come out of this unscathed. I'm paraphrasing, but it was that was the way that we phrased it. Mm-hmm. And we would get a response from people that was very textbook and they all sounded the same, but it also sounded all, it sounded kind of artificial. Um, until we got to one to one counselor was who was either the sister of this therapist from anger management five years later, or there's a stream of consciousness that I was finally picking up on. But she said, and again, the very sarcastic, passive aggressive way, she said, so you want to tell your 10 and 11 year olds that you're going to completely destroy their lives, uproot their homes. And you'd like to do that in a way that makes it easy for them and come out unscathed. Cause that's, well, she goes, that's not going to happen. She goes, so if that's what you want for me, you know, you're not going to get that. That's, that's an unachievable outcome. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. If you can't process it at age, I think I was 29 and, and she was 34, mm-hmm. there's zero chance that they're going to have to. So come back to me with a question that I can answer and help with. And I'd love to help you because at least you're here. And so from that, um, I took away this concept of people will do just about anything, even that which they're opposed to, if you make them a part of the process versus a victim of it. And that went fast forward to the anger management, right? Mm-hmm. It's great that I have this philosophy for dealing with my anger, but if I don't make my partner or my business, whoever it is, a part of that process, I'm not really honoring the intent of, of improving things. Right? I'm just saying, this is how it's going to be. I'm basically making it all about me again, and I'll come back to you when I'm ready even though I'm not paraphrasing that way, but you can wait. You and your trauma and your feelings and your pain can wait uh, because I chose that you didn't have the right to be a part of this process. So what happened in the end? With the kids? Yeah. Oh, you know what? Great story. The therapist too. The therapist and the kids. So we ended up going with her because she was amazing and she was uh, not only our couple's um, counselor moving forward because it was difficult (laughs) to navigate this thing as we knew that we couldn't do it and stay on target of focusing on the kids if we didn't have this very honest and blunt person saying, mm-hmm. hang on, Parm, hang on, Rob. So we value that, right? Um, but the, the examples that, sh- that she gave when it came to the kids were, because I said, well, what, what does that look like? She goes, well, you're going to have to move out. You're going to have to find an apartment. So that means that when you go looking for apartments or, or homes to live in, you take them with you and you make them part of the decision-making process, right? Amanda and Andrea will help make that decision. Why? Because they are part of the process. They're not mm-hmm. a victim of it, which means I found this great place. You had no input in this trauma. Just come and enjoy this new lovely home. She said, once you've done that, 
if you go to buy forks and knives for this apartment and you go to Ikea or whatever it is you go to, you bring them with you and they're part of the process of picking out these mundane little things. All of them, all of these things give a victim ownership over their trauma. It's not happening to them, it's happening with them. Uh, and when I apply that, so I didn't apply that, however, in the end of our marriage with Parmanai, right? It was very much, we were very much in victim status. Fast forward to you know, my next long-term relationship that had also had stepchildren involved. Um, but I'd, now I'd learned some things. I learned about better conversations. I learned about better conflict management. And I'd learned that just because she and I, my ex Vicky and I went into it with the best of intentions, we were going to give all of our kids a much more stable family type of world because now we knew, now we're 38 and 39 and we know these things. Um, we did on every front fulfill that, make them part of the process thing, except for, except for the moving in together thing. We moved in together really quickly because we were in love. We were committed. We knew that we were the right for each other. We had all the right intentions. It didn't end up working long-term, but it was an infinitely better match for everybody concerned than either of our marriages prior. Mm -hmm. But then for a second, we, and we both bought into this, make the kids part of the process because this is their world, right? So my kids and their kids met months before. And then also we said, screw it. That philosophy out the window. We're going to move in together in a month without talking to anybody about it. So lo and behold, the first time that we deviated from this, keep people involved in the process, whether we know that they like it or not, they, they, they love the fact that I moved in with them. They had a dad figure. I, I was, again, a stay-at-home dad. I, mm -hmm. I, I was that guy that they longed for, but in their terms. And so we went full force. And it's no wonder that one child, Melody, loved it. <laughs> Right, she was amazing. Andrew in the middle was was kind of stuck both ways, but he definitely was more accepting. And Kyle, the older one, was forget it. I know I said I wanted this, but you didn't even consult me. In later years, he would say that you didn't even talk to me about how that would look for me or what that would look like. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, and we talked. Now, now he's an adult. We talked later, obviously, but I decided that no, people in life don't decide things for me. I decide things for me. I'm Kyle. I'm an independent spirit. And if you'd included me in the conversation, like you did about, you know, meeting your kids, none of those things would have ever happened. So part of me was like, are you shifting responsibility for your own ridiculous behavior as a teen and then as an adult onto me? Uh, that was my go-to thing versus hearing what he was mm -hmm. saying, which was, Rob, you know that when you make people a part of the process in all walks of my life, even in corporate life, I can wow. achieve the most ridiculous outcomes that I know. It's almost a bit manipulative because I know if as long as I engage with the team and get input, not just input, but buy-in and contributions, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't end up going the way that I know it's going to go, because the board wants X, Y, Z, they're going to be in line and it's going to work out well because they were made, again, part of the process and not a victim of it. The moment I deviate from that in my world, even with my dog, <laughs> the moment I deviate from including people in what I know is going to be unpleasantness or trauma, it goes sideways. Make people part of the process. Wow. Not a victim of it. That's yeah. the key part. What about boundaries? That's one of my favorite words. Boundaries. <laughs> boundaries? Boundaries. Boundaries are are strong. Boundaries are weak. Boundaries are in the middle. But how important are boundaries in, in, in life and in work? All that. Uh, I mean, I think, I think boundaries are... Boundaries are required, right? That's a required part of existing, whether you're a nation, whether you're a person, whether you're, you're an electrical current, there's about the boundaries there for a reason. I think we need to understand what our own boundaries are and what drives our, our boundaries. So I definitely, 
I come with way too many boundaries. I come with far too many boundaries. Most of them, most of them, which are based on trauma, adopted child trauma. Um, I was cheated on trauma. Although, so most of my mm -hmm. boundaries are are self created as a result or as 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 a, as a response to. I'll say trauma, but perceived trauma, because that's also mm -hmm. how we choose to see things. So I'm responsible for identifying which ones are actually critical and which ones I need to do some freaking work on, right? And so identifying for me what my boundaries are is very actually, actually very simple. I didn't really hone in on it until, you know, the COVID, BLM, Me Too, that, that whole scenario. Uh, my requirements in a partner or a person was you needed to be outdoors, you need to be creative, you need to be political, you need to be this, you need to be all these things, right? You need to respect my boundaries, you need to talk to me this way versus you need to be a good human, love other human beings and do the best that you possibly can with what you have. That's my boundary. Um, but yeah, so boundaries are important, but I think they're only important, they're only as important if you want to exist with other people. And uh, so they're they're only as important... <laughs> As they, as they should be when you apply them to your world with other folks. So if I focus on my boundaries alone and I don't think about David's boundaries or my dog Shadow's boundaries or my partner's, uh, Jessica's boundaries, I don't un un understand them. My boundaries are never going to work because the chance of me finding somebody with the exact same boundaries are, are few and far between. So it's how do I apply my boundaries and respect my values and morals while still adhering to someone else and not having so many walls up in my boundaries that it's impossible for somebody to get in. Yeah. So you give me quite a few tidbits. I'm gonna give you one because you've taken right. on the conversation, which 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 is. Fine, I'm sorry. I'm so no, 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 man. You gave <laughs> I'm me a, a storyteller. That, that that's fine. <laughs> so one of my favorite boundaries. Oh, excuse me. Is no. The word no. I okay. love the word no. The word no is almost like sex sometimes, especially when I was going through my divorce. So I have different classes of no. I have a no with a mic drop, no explanation. I have a yep. no with a medium explanation. And then I have a no with a, you know, no thank you. That's not going to work for me today, but, but thanks for asking. So all these levels of no creates a different type of boundary for me in different situations. And right. I've learned that over the years and it's really helped me. So there you go. I actually like that. I, for some reason, I want to, I, I have a response, but I think you're right. It's about, give it to me. It's about, do I see the word no as a boundary? I think I see the word no as um, a tool to maintain a boundary for sure. Mm -hmm. I almost have too much of a black and white approach when it comes to things, things like the word no. For some reason, it's making me think probably far too much. I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an overthinker. Mm -hmm. But if I'm firm in my convictions, and I make sure that my convictions are salient and actually consequential. Not like I'm convicted that I will not eat dairy because that's a conviction, but that's not worth, I'm not going to hang my, what is it? Hang my cross on that one? Hang yeah. my hat on that? I'm not going to die on that. I'm not going to die on that particular hill. And so for me, no's are actually, I try to make sure that my no's are very black and white. When I use the word explicitly no, or it's a, or it's a hard, I'm not. I make sure that they apply to, a few core principles and everything else is a conversation. Mm -hmm. Just because I have a boundary about certain things, Jessica and I do that really, she's over there. <laughs> we do that really, really well. We know what our boundaries are, but we also know that we respect each other enough to know that if for some reason there's an incursion on the boundary, it's not from ill intent. And it's the for me, it's the determination of the intent of the boundary being crossed that's going to generate whether it gets that no or whether we can get a conversation. Um, my mom when my kids were born, 
I was 21 years old. My first daughter was born. And again, I thought I, thought I knew it all. Uh, and the first thing that she said in the delivery room was, I'm so proud. I'm a grandmother. This is amazing. And if I could just give you one piece of advice, and already in my head, I was like, I don't need your advice. I got this. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I've been, I'm, I'm, I'm an adult now. She goes, maybe so. But it's super important that you don't make the mistake that we did and say no to everything. I know this is not, this is a, a one interpretation of, of mm-hmm. no, but she said, it's important that you save the no's for the no's that matter. I remember thinking, ah, whatever, you don't want me to talk. I was like, this is my child. I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear yet another lecture from mom. I'm the parent now. I'm not getting lectures. I'm going to bestow lectures on this person. But she kept saying that. And then, so I asked my dad, who was very, he was very much more of a yogi than my mom was. I remember being angry. I said, what the fuck does she mean? What, what, is, what does that even mean? Well, she says that we said, no, you can't play outside. No, you can't eat that. No, you can't do this. No, you can't kill somebody. No, you can't listen to music loud. No, you can't chop the tree down pointing toward the house. No, you can't rape another woman. This is what he said to me. <laughs> we gave you so many no's that the word no, I'm looking at you. You didn't even react to the reference to rape and murder because you're so used to hearing the word no applied to everything yep. that the value of the word no has lost what it meant. So he said, you decide what the core principles are for your kids that you will definitively say harden. You will use the word no. You will embody the word no. You'll physically look and sound no. And everything else is a conversation. So Parma and I talked. My ex-wife and I talked. It's all drugs, obviously. Yeah. Um, things that we could control, we thought, like no sex before a certain, a certain age, like was a, as much as we could, was a hard no. Um, no violence was a hard no. And I think that I think those four, but those are three. Those were at every point in your upbringing. We will interject with a hard no. Everything else is a conversation. So the conversation goes: I rather you not chop down the tree pointing toward the house. Is is that the conversation? Or, so if that was the example, my dad's example would have been: I'm going to show you what happens when you do. Okay. Versus, again, just because saying, paraphrasing no in a different way is still saying no. Asking me, well, why do you want to chop the tree down in that direction? What is like, what is your motivation for doing that? Rationalize what your thought is and you might get to the no yourself or I might get to the point where maybe there's an in-between. Um, so for him, that that would be the rational. And actually, that that was when it came to things like even, even when it came to getting the chickens ready for, for, for dinner, right? You chop their head off in a certain way. Because you don't want it to run all over the place. And so I just wanted to go back and play with my freaking Legos. I didn't want to do this. How do I justify the thou shalt now kill, which was a hard no, mm-hmm. with here you get to kill, but you got to do it in a certain way because we don't want blood spraying all over the barn. Um, and so he asked me to rationalize why I kept doing it the way I was doing it not the way I was told, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't say, no, that's not how you do it. Because why, why are you doing it this way? And so I explained to him what I, what, I, what, I, what I told him. I said, most of my rebellion wasn't at the logic of we don't want blood spraying all over the car and the, 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 the attack shed. We want to contain the carnage <laughs> over here. My, my resistance to the idea of no was you told us that we shouldn't kill anything. And so we had a conversation versus just, so I, I, I understood the no from his context. He understood the no from the conflicts that I was having and rationalizing the no, because we all do that when we're told we shouldn't do something, but Correct. why, but why? And so for him, the, the managing of that was the addressing the, the, the why before you even got to the no part. 
maybe that was holistic. And again, I grew up in a family that was very different. I say no very rarely. In work, I say no very, very rarely. I think most definitely with the younger millennials and the Gen Zs, saying no is almost not an option anymore. <laughs> because the consensus building, the consensus building is off the charts. I'd say to some degree required, to some degree a little bit overdone, but you almost can't say no to a host of things unless they're key core things. But I mean, look at the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. We can't even really say no to things that should be no-brainers. So I'm yeah. not sure how much value no has as a as a physical boundary versus, yeah. Oh, wow. I hijacked the conversation again, David. <laughs> That's okay. I don't mind. I'm getting used <laughs> to it. No, oh, no stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, just, just, say, just tell me to stop. Just I guarantee no. you I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of my most intriguing questions, how do you separate your work and life? Because I know so deep I, down inside you work your ass off. I do. Yeah. But I, ironically, that is one of the core tenants. And I've only realized it in the past five years, post PayPal and corporate Fortune 500 world, is that is one of my hard no's to myself. Okay. Right? I know that we have to achieve this deadline, this objective, this whatever. I know that it's going to make me look amazing. It's going to fill all sorts of ego buckets and tactical and fiscal buckets. But I remember what life was like when I had no work-life balance and how miserable that made me and how horrible a husband and a partner that made me. So that's a hard no. Because some of the guys out there might be struggling with work-life balance during the divorce or after the divorce. How should they even try to broach that? Oh, I don't... So or, I think one or is. Re- how would you I think do it, it? Yeah, I think yeah. So that that one I can help with. Like it's, I think it's relative to the situation because the other aspect to work life balance is we all know, know that going into a divorce, um, there's a financial cost, and it's largely to men. So the luxury of finding work life balance um, is mitigated, if not eliminated, because you now have to not only manage your own finances as it was previously, but now you've got an extra level of. An extra level of reason to almost toss your needs out the window in favor of earning that extra dollar. I was lucky in the sense that we didn't have a lot to separate and split and share because we mm-hmm. were not doing financially well at that point. I didn't, I didn't jettison into this corporate world until after uh, the divorce. I was a physical laborer. I worked in factories and plants and driving forklifts and all that kind of good stuff, driving trucks for FedEx. So we didn't have to worry about the separation and splitting of assets because there simply was none. We were, we were also, I think I mentioned that we were also very committed to what was best for the kids regardless. So we didn't quibble. Again, it was very unique and rare. I think the one takeaway that I had from how I was raised, um, we didn't have debates or arguments about how much I should be contributing or paying. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't, I didn't, ha- I can't speak from experience because I didn't, I was lucky that I had a partner or a wife that we were on the same page that there's a priority here that precludes all of the other kind of expected arguments about about finances so we didn't have that um and for me i i opted to go to work full-time because it was a replacement for the family structure right i worked Mm -hmm. more so i removed my work-life balance because i wanted something to fill that particular void i i honestly david i i don't know what to say to folks that are in a position now where they need to manage their finances in a way that they're now supporting two households um the cost of living has gone up ridiculously so since I was last divorced. I can't fathom supporting anything other than my granddaughter's tuition right now uh, and my daughter's post-veterinary. I, it's, it's a struggle, so I can't imagine what that would be like for, for men these days. Yep. I think the conversation becomes easier depending on the connection you have with your partner. So maybe that's the takeaway that I can share, which is my connection with my ex-wife 
even though, yes, I was cheated on. I had all the, all the checkboxes that should make me an angry young or then not so young man were, were checked off. But we had the type of connection, if you can call it, or understanding that the kids did come first and that organically precluded a bunch of other what about me conversations. Mm -hmm. So I think if I could give some advice, I guess, I don't know what the circumstance would be because it's different for each, each divorce. Mm -hmm. But if you can make, and this is tough because you don't want to make an ally of somebody that you feel has viscerally wronged you. But if you can make an ally of the person that you're leaving to some degree, right? Then that financial hardship, I don't know if it will be, um, reduced or removed, but it will be mitigated by having somebody in your court that when it does become tough to make ends meet, because it's going to be difficult, you yeah. now have an ally that understands and say, you know what? You've communicated to me back to the communication, right? Part of the process. You communicated to me that you want to do the right thing, um, which I internally can process as, oh shit, I got lucky. I got one that wants to do the right thing, even though what I did to him, I need to now reciprocate some way. And if that just means being patient when it does go sideways, because finances are going to be tough. Now I'm in a position to empathize and say, okay, David or Rob, you've communicated to me that, that times are, you know, tough. I get it. What can we do to make it easier? Right? I think it's that conversation when you leave, but if you go out guns blazing, um, your partner's going to come back guns blazing and any help financially. Unfortunately, it's funny. It kind of sucks because it is a power dynamic that Definitely. exists for women. And Unfortunately, whether it's because some of us men are dicks, <laughs> it's become um, an expected weapon in the arsenal of, of women being left. I think sometimes it's warranted. I think more often than not, though, it's just one of the things that you do. I'm getting divorced. Ergo, I'm going to take him for a ride. It's just what you do, whether yeah. I believe it or not. But that's just what my girlfriends do. And I'm talking to that's, what, that's the thing I would say when you're when you're exiting a relationship. Do not talk to your friends. Don't get advice from your girlfriends. Don't get advice from your your bros at the bar that are just going to help fuel the, the, the required mantra. But if you can make an ally out of this person that does hold the financial power card when you leave, then that person is going to, depending on, de depending on how you manage that, even if it's just tactile, you may have to hold your nose doing it. But if you need to kiss that person's ass and get them to empathize, <laughs> because you know, at some point, at some point, you're not going to be able to, to, to make it work. You need to know that that extra threat of, I've got a court order, I've got a whatever, right? That that no wiggle room um, is gone because then at least you can manage whatever financial issues you have there. Mm -hmm. The people that I know that have taken that kind of collaborative approach when it comes to the finances and my ex and I are, are, are an example of that, but even in recent terms is finances also change. And what's interesting is I've seen my guy friends that have gone through relationships, either they're common law or divorces and and when they've managed it in a kind of a, I don't want to say managed because it suggests that there's a right way or wrong way, but when they've brokered that separation with, um, without animosity, that person is still in, because there's kids involved, that person is still an active supporter of you being okay because it's in their interest of the kids that you need to be okay. So if, if that means that the finances need to shift, um, I was talking with my friend Carmel the other day where she said that her guy, she hates him to death, but he's a good dad and he just got laid off because of a bunch of things. And so she organically said to him, you know what? I know what's coming up. I heard about the layoffs. How about we just reduce it? Don't worry about Christmas. So if you have an ally in that process, even a begrudging yeah, ally, it, really helps. it could make that difference. Yeah. I just, I do know that I do. I also, I also hear of, and I have um, 
I tend to get rid of friends like that, but I do have some female friends who, who leverage it. Like, screw him. He shouldn't have left or shouldn't have cheated. And so I'm going to leverage whatever tool I've got. And if that's finances, he should have thought about that before he did X, Y, Z. And I just think it doesn't get us anywhere. Like, again, polarizingly locking ourselves into, into a status quo because that's what everyone else does or because it makes you feel good in the moment. It just doesn't work. And unfortunately, I'm not sure what the laws are like in the States, but if I can't afford to pay, I have plenty of loopholes on my side that will get me out of paying. So it's not even in the interest of, um, of, of the ex holding the financial power card to use that because at some point I can just opt out bankruptcy. Where does your card get you then? For, so for me, it's about, those, it's about those early day conversations. How are we going to manage that split? What are our hard no's when it comes to we're ending it? These are the no's that we care about. No, you're not going to take my kids away from me. Let's agree on that one. No, you're not going to... I think this is a good one. No, you're not going to introduce another woman into the household without doing the courtesy of at least... Like, that's not going to happen. The other ones, let's keep them flexible because things move. And I know another fellow who had that kind of relationship where it was tit for tat. He went through a, a layoff with Microsoft. Um, he went from being like a 200K a year person to very little. And she was used to that lifestyle. And they were, they were getting along great when it came to the kids and whatnot, but he couldn't do it. She reached out to him and said, okay, I know this is going to be a hit. Um, what, what can you do? Her, her, her out wasn't, you know, I'm going to forgive the debt until you get back on your feet. It was what can you do? But it was still, it was still an awareness that things were going to get tough and they figured it out. When he got rehired by another company that I can't mention and was making a gazillion more, he voluntarily said, well, I know the court order says, the court order says this. And here in Canada, there comes a point where you don't need to go to court every time to renegotiate the number. That number is for life. You can make mm -hmm. a million a year. And your, if your payment was 100 bucks a month, then it stays. It's, it stays. So he said, you know what? I got this promotion. I don't, I'm not sure what the, what the words were, but the recognition was you were there for me when it got shitty, even though you didn't have to be. And now when things are good, I feel obligated. Even though I still hate the fact that you did all those things, I feel obligated to reciprocate because we went into this um, with some boundaries and it didn't involve mm -hmm. using leverage like that. Well, I, I've got quite a few takeaways, but my main takeaway is I should have got divorced in uh, Canada. <laughs> that's that's my main takeaway. Oh my gosh! What's the, is it still very much set up against uh, pretty, the male? Much. Uh, yes, yes. And we'll go into the story after we uh, we um, sign off. Sign okay. Off. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want to put too much of that up in the air. But of course Rob, not. I appreciate you, man, and talking, and that's okay because you dropped some knowledge for my <laughs> listeners. <laughs> And I appreciate it. And you made me think about a few things. Um, yeah. Appreciate that. It's yeah. um, and it, they're all hard lessons. It all comes to me. It comes to back to this concept of shared accountability in everything. It's easy when we're being traumatized, and as people of color, we know that oh, we definitely. know how easy. Yeah. But if we can look at this concept of shared accountability, which is tough, which means you have to say, even though I know I've been wronged, what did I bring to the table? Oh, I don't want to say what did I bring to the table even if it means boundaries that let being crossed. And the moment yeah. we share some accountability, those conversations, for me, become uh, a lot more conducive to moving forward than just locked in on polarized positions. So well, thanks for letting me share my man. world of knowledge. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll probably go off camera and say something dumb to Jessica and screw up my relationship. That's okay.
<laughs> well, Rob, we, uh, we appreciate you and uh, taking time to talk to us. And uh, we're going to sign off and go from there. But we'll, I'm definitely going have you back on the show because I know you got some more knowledge. That was just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> David, all the best to you and all the best to the men listening out there. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.